The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, April 26th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And today we will have, because it's so exciting and because you demanded it, we will have full Gist team coverage of the White House's tax proposal. We will dive into the details. And you know how much this White House likes diving into the details. Right, economics director Gary Cohn? You're going into very micro details. Okay, well, how about you, Mr. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin? I think, as we've said, we're working on lots of details. Another detail, this one from the world of technology, entertainment, and design. Yes, well, to that existing world of TED, add the field of papacy. We had a pated talk. Pated patak, if you will, on our hands, because the Pope contributed his insight to the genre of TED Talks. It was the first papal TED Talk since the year 897, when for 20 days, Pope Theodore II wore the fisherman's ring before dying in office, probably due to poisoning. So our current Pope, Pope Francis, sought to address the poisons of our age and how better to nourish the soul than a TED Talk. And many of us nowadays do not look upward to the heavens or inward to the soul for sustenance. And this is a mistake. I have the solution. It is really so simple when you think about it. It is the power of power poses. Just stand uh, fiercely and let the world know it is not in charge of you. You are in charge of the world. Also, in this Pitted talk, I want to talk about screen time. So, so bad screen time. I have learned one simple trick to counteract screen time. Nanotechnology. And how can nanotechnology and the power of yes solve the problems of a small village in India? I call this shedding our old systems. How many of us can think of a time when we didn't use the power of what I call the power of yes to say, I shed my old system. Very disappointing. I call it our spiritual immune system, which brings me to this idea. Our grandparents knew it, our parents maybe knew it, but somehow it has been lost in our modern world of multitasking and screen time and what I call knowing what to not know. I speak, of course, of the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things plus a nanotechnology combined with Christ's love, also micronutrients. Have you ever looked in the mirror and really saw yourself and truly asked yourself, why not the Internet of Things? Why not? God bless, and please download my Popmobile ride-sharing app, Huber. On the show today, as promised, tax details. Have you filled out your brackets yet? There are only three of them. And for all we know, one's the same as the other two. You don't know the details. But first, elections in France, on the heels of the vote in the Netherlands, and Brexit, and that time in America, where, as my young nephew says, the orange man made the pantsuit lady sad. Liberal democracy is certainly a thing worth saving. The question is, are we up to that challenge?
French presidential election delivered some surprising results that actually we all kind of expect. It doesn't mean they're not shocking. The two candidates who have been put forward represent parties who have collectively three seats between them <laughs> in the National Assembly and in the Senate. And by the way, there are over a thousand members of the National Assembly and the Senate, I think over 1,100. None of these seats are from the homage party because that was just recently invented. And Marine Le Pen's national front, she has all three of them. But what does it mean? What I've been seeing in Western media is it means a wipe of the brow Oh, thank God, Marine Le Pen didn't win the first round and she probably won't win. And it might be true that she probably won't win, but that doesn't mean that the French election isn't telling us something. Joining me now is Yasha Monk, who writes the Good Fight column for Slate, How to Save Liberal Democracy. That, by the way, is a noble goal. How are you doing, Yasha? On the goal and how are you doing? (laughs) Hi, I'm doing well. Uh, I don't know how I'm doing at saving liberal democracy, but I think the United States is doing pretty well. I was really, really worried after the election mm-hmm. because I think that we have all of the tools we need in order to save liberal democracy. The Constitution gives us checks and balances, but Americans need to actually fight for that. The Constitution is not going to save itself. And there was this real sense of complacency until recently. How many, what percent of Americans are sufficient to fight for it? <laughs> well, that's the question, right? I mean, yeah. what we're seeing like, is... Well, if it's an insufficient to win an election, to have someone mm-hmm. who's a champion of liberal democracy, whatever you think of Hillary Clinton, she believes in civic institutions, right? Uh, okay, so it's not enough to put her into the White House, but if 30% of people really care about it, is that good enough? No, so look, in order for liberal democracy to be safe, you have to have real consensus around it. Political scientists talk about liberal democracy being the only game in town. And for that, you really need everybody to be on board. You need... Republicans to not want to rewrite the job description of a governor of North Carolina after he's been elected because he happens to be a Democrat, right? Like that's really, really erosive. You you have to make sure that people don't think, well, as long as Donald Trump is our president, we don't care if he lies. We don't care if he overstops the bounds of his authority. So we're still in a world of hurt, in a world of trouble. But... um, the opposition is doing really hard work and they're standing up for those principles. And that's not as good as social consensus, but it's much better than what I feared, which was a lack of recognition of a danger win. Yeah, I've always said on this show that serious people doing their jobs are going to be the savior of this democracy. And I want to get to France, but I think that the perhaps the lesson of France, and you tell me, um, taken together with the lesson of... Um, Uh, the Netherlands, and maybe even in the United States, that the problem with liberal democracy is the democracy. (laughs) That (laughs) if you let people just have their druthers, yes, Gerd Wilders did not win, but it was also very important that it was in the Netherlands, but it was basically impossible for him to have headed a government because of the way their structures work. And I wonder if there's anything baked into the French system that saved them, or that perhaps will save them from Marine Le Pen. Well, I I just want to take a step back, right? Because the idea that because Brexit happened, because Donald Trump happened, um, now our baseline expectation should be that sort of the lunatics win Uh every election is sort of insane, right? I mean, these people should not... No, of course. And it's good to be anxious. It's good to be really worried. It's just that I think we we can't have too low expectations of a world, right? Like the, the, the standard should be how much influence do these populists have? 
other a lot of people in the political system who want to destroy it might gain power eventually. And what I see in benevolence, what I see in this election in France, is populists continuing to make real gains. Mm -hmm. In the second round, I think Emmanuel Macron is probably going to win against Marine Le Pen. But in 2002, when Marine Le Pen's father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, got through to the second round, he got less than 20%. Yeah. In the second round of elections. The first round, now, Chirac had 19% and he had 16%. And then in the second round, he had less than 20%. Chirac had 80-something percent. He got he gained almost no votes from that round. Exactly. And now Marine Le Pen won about 21% in the mm -hmm. first round of the election. And she's probably going to be at least in the mid-30s, if not around 40% in the second round of the election. So, you know, what I see in a lot of the reporting around this in the last couple of days is, oh, hurrah, the ascent of, liberal, of populism has been stopped. You know, we, the fever is breaking. It's like, no. When you look at this election compared to five years ago, compared to 10 years ago, compared to 15 years ago, populists have done better than they ever have. It, that doesn't mean they're going to win and take over every government at every election. The populist surge is ongoing. What are the populists right about? <laughs> well, I think um, that they are right about the fact that the political establishment has become uh, complacent. Um, France is a great example of that, right? So you've seen the slow destruction of center-left parties around the world, especially social democratic parties. And so uh, Benoit Hamon, the, the candidate of the Parti Socialiste, got 6%, um, which is actually the same percentage that the Social Democrats had gotten in the Netherlands a few months ago. Mm -hmm. So the main historic force of the center-left in Europe has vanished. But one of the striking things here is that the main candidate of the center-right party didn't make it through to the second round either, François Fillon. And he was so uh, racked by scandal. Right. It's completely their own fault, yeah. right? I mean, he employed family members as parliamentary assistants, which is actually unclear if it's illegal, which is itself kind of insane. But, but clearly very corrupt practices, even if it's not technically illegal, potentially. And then when this scandal broke, he said, ah, this is fine. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna stop running. I'll still be running. So you know, populists are right to be angry about that, and populists are also right that there's a lot in the current situation in France that's not working. Youth unemployment is at 25 percent. Living standards for average people have been stagnating for a long time. Now, it's easy to be right about the problems. It's difficult to be right about the solutions. And there, the populists have nothing to offer. And as we're seeing in the United States. If they get to power, they are likely to actually worsen things for their own supporters. So how is it that all these center-right, center-left, historical ruling parties all throughout Europe have at this moment been exposed to be fat, happy, lazy, and self-dealing? Is that really the case? Maybe Merkel, although her party's not doing so well. But party after party, what is it that they've just been in power and there's a sell-by date and it's, it's all these... They're all coming due at the same time? No, I think there's a real transformation going on in the background. So the first thing that any populist says is politics is really simple, mm -hmm. right? Like, why isn't your standard of living rising really rapidly? Why do you have to deal with these immigrants that you don't like and so on? Well, because the elite is corrupt and they're stupid and they're self-serving. And so all it takes is for me to be elected to power and then I'll do everything for you. Um, and when they get elected to power, and as we've been hearing the refrain uh, from the White House over the last couple of months, oh, nobody told me that this is so complicated. Oh, who knew that yeah. international relations were complicated? <laughs> who knew that healthcare is complicated? Turns right? out there's a formula for calling China a currency manipulator. There's an actual formula. I thought it was just in general. <laughs> so politics is actually complicated, right? We had this period 
of incredibly rapid improvement of living standards for average citizens. So in the United States, from 1935 to 1960, they doubled. From 1960 to 1985, they doubled again. It was similar in Europe. The Trente Glorieuse, the 30 glorious years after uh, the end of the Second World War, in which people's livelihood just transformed. You know, people didn't have the fridge. They certainly didn't have a car. They lived in tiny, cramped spaces. I mean, suddenly they had much bigger apartments, they had a car, they had a fridge, they had all of those consumer amenities. And so, of course, they liked the political system because the political system was giving them a lot of things. Now, that's no longer the case. Well, why? The reasons are really complicated. It has to do with uh, a leveling off of productivity growth. It has to do to some degree with globalization. There's many complicated causes for it. And so one of the reasons why establishment parties are doing less well is that they don't have this huge boost of what political scientists call output legitimacy. They can't just point to, look, your standard of living doubled, yeah. so vote for us, right? And that's partially their fault. I mean, certainly there are some political fixes that, that we could find, and to some degree these parties have become a little lazy and so on. But it's also that the challenge that they face is just much, much bigger. So one of the things that it also does, we're talking about uh, the parties, the establishment not being able to deliver tangible material gains. It also convinces people that when things are going okay, like the American economy was, that they aren't. And polling before mm. and after the election, yeah. Democrats, when the economy hasn't changed, they said it was pretty good under, the Democrats said it was pretty good under Obama and isn't good under Trump. And the Republicans were the opposite. And that has flipped Maybe it's just because my team won, but I think it's largely because of media dissemination. So when it comes to actual tangible gains, I mean, there are a lot of thinkers who say, who said, I wouldn't have been surprised had this happened at a time, a de Great Depression era time when unemployment was like 20 something percent. But for now, slight dislocations, some hard times, uh, definitely moving from a manufacturing economy to an information economy, you know, not without friction, but not bad at all. And yet people are treating it like it is horrendous economic times. Yeah, so I, I would distinguish a little bit there actually between the States and Europe, right? And in much of Europe, the economic times are pretty horrendous. In France, they're um, really bad. Yeah, and, and especially, you know, you have an economy there. So a lot of people are calling Emmanuel Macron the sort of terrible neoliberal. Um, you, know, you know, there's parts of his program I agree with, parts of his program, but I don't 100% agree with. But one of the things that he wants to do is to actually invest more, preserve a lot of social protection, but liberalize the labor market. And one of the reasons why so many young people are unemployed in, in France is that it's really difficult to enter the labor market because once you're hired by a company, they basically can't fire you unless they're about to go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And then they can sort of say, well, you know. Um, and so it's a labor market in which older French people are doing pretty well because they were hired 20 years ago. They have cushy jobs, right? And younger people just struggle, even really well-educated younger people, to find any kind of job. And so the fact that over 50% of young people voted either for the far-right populist Marine Le Pen or for the far left populist Jean-Luc Mélenchon is related to the economic pain. And unlike in the United States, you have a clear correlation between income and voting for populists in the first round of a French election. So yeah, this is definitely connected. I have, there is an argument, uh, you know, I've read many Paul Krugman columns where he said, <laughs> maybe we should consider France. And yes, they have 2% growth and America, 
or they have, you know, 0.8% growth and America's 2.5% growth. But, you know, America's growth is a consequence of things like we don't have as many vacations or it's much easier to fire Americans or much less labor protection and much less health care. Maybe the French model is better. The French aren't saying their model is better. So we have two opposite models and they've given rise to similar feelings like our economies aren't working. Yeah, and, and it may just be that we have a wrong baseline, right? Which is a really depressing thought. But our baseline for what a working economy looks like comes from a period where all of the stars aligned in a way that they'd never before done in human history yeah. to produce incredibly rapid growth rates, which we may not be able to replicate. That's what some economists think, right? Now, look, I think... If that, that is true, how do we ever stave off the populists? Well, this well, look. I mean, you know, there's this huge debate things about. Will never, don't expect things to be as good as your dad had them. That's it. I mean, I say game on for anyone trying to. Yeah, uh, how do you sell that message? Yeah, no, how, do you, I mean, how do you be a moderate who says stay the course if that's the reality? Well, I think we've got to fight to improve the lives of people, right? That's why I find the, the low growth scenario uh, not very promising, right? So, like at some intellectual level, there's a good case for low economic growth. So let me set it out very quickly, right? When you go from being a very poor country to a somewhat poor country, your happiness shoots up. Mm -hmm. But when you go from a pretty poor country to a very rich country, it doesn't actually improve very much. So Costa Rica is happier than the United States. The same is true on the individual level. Once you earn more than about, I think, $70,000 a year, increase in income doesn't make you happier. Um, and the same is true historically in the United States. The United States in, the 19, in 1960 the average American reported being as happy as they are today, even for America is a much happier country, a much richer country today, right? So you could say, let's let's build a post-growth economy, right, Where which doesn't depend on this ongoing economic growth. People are going to be as happy. And there is a real case for that. There's something appealing about it. It would conserve our natural resources better. Politically, I think it would be a disaster. I think when people don't see that kind of growth, they become angry. It becomes zero sum. So when somebody who's not of your group starts doing well, you stop thinking, well, I'm doing well, good, but he's doing well too. Yeah. You start thinking, well, look, my standard of living hasn't improved. Why is that guy doing okay? Um, I think it has lots and lots of bad economic consequences. And one of them is that it's really difficult to have economic dynamism when you don't have growth. I don't think growth matters. I don't think that, you know, us having twice as much stuff as we do now is going to make us happier. But, but the a 21-year-old yeah. saying, if I'm good in college and I yeah. work hard at something, I'm going to have a great career. Yeah. That matters. And a lot of people mobility. in Europe do not have that. Right, right. And that's the American dream right there. And it used to be actually more of a reality. And now it's harder for someone in the first quartile to jump up to the third. Or and it was the European dream too. I mean, yeah. in the 60s and 70s, you went from, you know, 5% of people having a college education and middle-class jobs to 30% having that in Europe, right? And that was a rapid transformation and now i know you know i i spend a lot of time in italy i know people there who are great admirable talented people and you know when they were 20 they had the same ambitions that my friends in england and the states have and now you know 12 13 years on um they've been underemployed or unemployed and smoked wheat and played xbox for 12 years and they're not happy with their lives how are their halo scores Pretty good. Yeah, pretty they're, good. They're kicking ass. Yeah. Oh. The, the heavy metal bands are really good. For ah. some reason, Italians and beautiful uh, countryside villages are really yeah. into heavy metal. It's yeah, Scandinavians thing. too. Swedish yeah. death metal. It's big. Uh, to, different kind of economic picture. How much can we depend, can we rely on, can we expect that great leaders will deliver 
us solutions. Like, I don't know how good, I think, I think Nicola Sturgeon's a pretty good leader. Even with her, I don't know how much she could deliver for Scotland. I'm glad, I hope Le Pen will not become president of France. But if Macron does, how great can he be? How much can we expect? Well, you know who was a pretty good leader? Barack Obama. Yeah. yeah. He's a pretty great leader. Yeah. How much did he do? Well, look, I mean, you know, I think we mark on, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act is pretty good. It did get coverage to a lot of people. He dug the economy out after 2008. He did some things, but was that enough to suddenly transport us into some paradise where we have doubling living standards again? No, of course not, because these forces are bigger. So so you're right. Yeah, he was that- a very good leader. And from the beginning to the end of his presidency, it is the end of his presidency where you start writing the Saving Liberal Democracy column, not in right. the beginning of right. his presidency. Yeah. No. So so I think the challenge we face is really, really momentous. There are things we can do. There are economic reforms we can do to make sure that even though economic growth is slower, most of those gains go to middle class people rather than, as is the case at the moment, a vast majority of the gains go to the top 1%. So there are things we can do, but we also have to think about how we convince people of the importance of our political system, of political freedom, and that's going to be a huge challenge, not just for the next, you know, four years minus 100 days of Donald Trump, but for the next 40 years. Yasha Monk is a lecturer on government at Harvard. He's the author of the forthcoming The Age of Responsibility and is the host of the Good Fight podcast. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Today, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and economic advisor Gary Cohn unveiled the White House tax plan, and it is a stunning deliverance from one of the great ills of our age. You know the ones that Trump's always going on about, Islamic terrorism. All right, it's not that one. Mexican border jumpers. All right, it's not that one either. I know it's the third horseman of the trump apocalypse. It's paperwork. Taxpayers spend nearly $7 billion hours complying with these tax codes every year. Well, that is true. That is bad. The Trump tax plan will eliminate all deductions, but charity, some mortgages, and retirement. And that is simpler. For millions of mostly middle and lower class homeowners, it's worse, but it is simpler. It's worse because it's a little complex, because unless your home is worth, you know, at least half a million dollars, it won't pay for you to deduct it. You won't be able to surpass the now double standard deduction. So that might seem like a wash to you, but it isn't. Lots of homeowners have built into the value of their home a resale value that reflects the fact that the next homeowner is going to get a deduction. If they won't get a deduction, what we've just done is wipe out the value of a lot of homes. And since most people, most of their wealth is tied up in their home, we've just hurt, if this plan passes, a lot, a lot of people. So homeowners, or most homeowners, I do not think will benefit. Here's who will benefit. Under the Trump plan, we will have a massive tax cut for businesses and massive tax reform and simplification. Yes, that is true. Businesses have their tax rate more than halved, and individuals will find out that filing their taxes is easier. 
No deductions is easier than deductions. Those pesky forms that you have to fill out to save money. We are eliminating those forms. Wait, are you also eliminating the part where we're saving money? No, we are eliminating the forms. That's what to focus on. I want to be fair. Eliminating a lot of the deductions that are in the tax code, that is actually good policy, but probably not in one fell swoop. It should be phased in. And I do think the corporate tax rate should actually be lowered if there are some other ways for the government to collect money, like on capital gains, which is for some reason also being lowered. Otherwise, the government's going to collect less money. Another way to say that is the deficit's going to go up and the national debt is going to swell. Corporations will benefit, but the country might not. Also, we should note under this new plan, if you could do it, if there's any way, you got to become a corporation. If you incorporate, your tax rate's only going to be 15%. That is pretty great. Now, if you're a policeman, a fireman, a teacher, a nurse, or a full-time employee of a company, that's going to suck. But you'll be paying for that hardworking businessman and job creator, the CEO of Pesco LLC. Now, Mnuchin and Cohen said their huge tax breaks for business won't hurt the deficit, and they cited a couple reasons why. Pixie farts and unicorn snot. The technical terms for those being... This will pay for itself with growth and with reduced reduction of, of different deductions and closing loopholes. Growth and loopholes, which you should see a dermatologist about. The growth picture. Now, Trump has been really consistent. Here was economic advisor Stephen Moore during the campaign talking about growth. I guarantee you, you heard it first on the Stuart Marnie show, we get a Donald Trump presidency, we're going to have 4% growth for five years. Write it down. 4% growth for five years. And here's the president himself promising that. It's time to start thinking big once again. That's why I believe it's time to establish a national goal of reaching 4% economic growth. So it was good today to hear Treasury Secretary Mnuchin reiterating that specific goal. We believe we can get back to 3% or higher GDP that is sustainable in this country. Wait, three? That is not the number you have been saying. You're going into very micro details. Details, details, like the fact that Trump's tax plan will lower Trump's personal tax rate to about 5%. So I guess that really is a micro detail, micro detail. That's it for today's show. Chris Berube, just producer, is looking forward to the Pope's next Pated talk on microlending, smart water, and the transubstantiation of the Eucharist. Mary Wilson, just producer, wants to hear about sharing, caring, Lady Elaine, and Daniel Tiger in a very soothing Fred talk. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, doesn't need words, just the sweet licks of Steve Vai, Ingve Malmstein, and Morbid Angels, Trey Azagatoth as they deliver shred talks. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Sourdough, pita, challah. It's all there in Panoply's newest podcast, Bread Talks. The gist, whether it's episode one, have you gained weight? Episode four, I never liked your husband. Or the much downloaded episode 12. Let me tell you about this weird thing that's going on in my digestive tract. It's the things better left unsaid talks. Things Better Left Unsaid Talks. Do not download it at Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get truly repellent audio programming. Oom Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>